Amen. We're going to be jumping back into 1 Timothy this morning. We're in chapter 5. We've been here now for some time. Uh, more recently, we've, we've covered the section that had to do with the care of elderly widowed women uh, in the church. Uh, earlier, all the way back in chapter 3, we'd studied in some detail the office of, of elder, and <clears throat> Paul went into lots of detail there in regard to that particular office of elder or sometimes called overseer. Uh, uh, and, and, and I want you to remember this, that this is a letter that's being written by Paul. And I would imagine that when he sat down to write it, he had specific things already in mind that he was going to say to Timothy, his protege. But at the same time, we see sometimes in the epistles the same thing that you and I do when we write letters. And that is you get toward the end and you start thinking about lots of other things. And so you put in a sentence here and put in a sentence there. And all that, just, just remember, and it's helpful to keep these books in context because these were actual letters that were written by Paul to this particular person happened to be Timothy. This is if you were writing a letter. Now, we know that they're, they're more than letters. They are letters, but they're more than letters. And they're part of Holy Writ. They've been included in the Scripture because it was the will and purpose of God to do that. Uh, but anyway... We jumped into chapter 5 of, a few months ago, and now we're up to verse 17 is where we're going to begin this morning. I'm just going to read a little bit. We've already broke ice on this last time we were here a few weeks ago. Let the, elder who, uh, the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also may be fearful of, uh, of sinning. Well, we opened this up a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago. And uh, we acknowledge that there is a distinction that Paul makes here between levels or degrees of eldership, if you want to call it that. Uh, that he's, he's speaking here specifically to teaching elders or about teaching elders, uh, which would be my official title in the PCA. My official title is not pastor, it's not minister, it's not reverend, it is teaching elder. So if I go to Presbyterian meetings and they're introducing the male, call me teaching elder Staten. Or General Assembly, the same kind of thing. Uh, and as we said before, Timothy was a teaching elder. Paul was a teaching elder. Also, Paul was also an apostle, right? But he was also a teaching elder. And so we're talking about letters from pastors to pastors. This is why this is one of the, this is one of the letters that is considered to be a pastoral epistle. It's a pastor writing to a pastor with advice and counsel in regard to things. And, uh, and again, at the same time, just remember Paul was also an apostle, which really put him a lot higher up there and, uh, and all of that. Uh, now, and, I, and we said before as we began this book, a lot of the things that it talks about really apply mostly to me because I'm the teaching elder here. 
Uh, that doesn't mean that we can't all glean very important and deep things from these different epistles. And I hope as we've gone through the, this first uh, epistle to Timothy that we've done that, that we've been able to demonstrate week by week by week how all of these things apply to each one of us in particular kinds of ways. Well, what Paul is doing here in these verses that we just read is this, is he, he's arguing the case that it's actually okay for teaching elders to be compensated for what they do. <clears throat> there are some people in the church today who would say otherwise. I mean, I, there are people who have the mindset that it's wrong, in essence, for someone to make their living by sharing the gospel with other people. Paul is addressing that particular concern right here because I could imagine there were people in Ephesus and other places in the church that Paul had influence who had the same mindset. Now, why would they? It would be things like this. You may not realize this, but the Pharisees, you know, that we know so much about uh, present in the days of Jesus and in, in the apostle Paul in the Jewish community, very influential. They were teachers and et cetera, but they were also professional people. In other words, they made their living by another means, and they were not compensated for being Pharisees. Typically, now there may have been exceptions to that, but typically they were not compensated for it. Paul was a professional tent maker before he went on the mission field. And when he was in Corinth, because he really didn't have any ministry support at that time, he actually took up tent making with Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth. They had the same profession that he did, so they be, he began to work with them. But we, we know this as we read through First and Second Corinthians and Acts that he only did that for a time. That when support began to pour in from some of the Macedonian churches like the, the church in Philippi, Paul ceased to do his tent making, and he spent all of his time working and teaching the word of God. He quotes a couple of Old Testament passages here to prove the point. Uh, another very helpful passage uh, for us is in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where, uh, where he uh, says things like this. He says... Uh, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? How many soldiers do you know go out and they, fun, they, they, they financially support themselves? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat some of its fruits? I mean, these are the rhetorical questions. We all know what the answer is going to be, and that is really nobody. That they benefit from where their efforts are being exerted. Uh, later on in the same chapter, he says this. He says, if we should, or we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we shall reap material things from you? So we just don't need to understand this is what Paul's purpose is in this particular, and that's to justify biblically that it's okay for some people to make their living as 
what we would classify or call teaching elders. Uh, most of you know that this is my second profession, that I worked in the nuclear power industry for 10 years and did some other things before that. Uh, I was actually in my 40s before I became a pastor. I started seminary when I was about 40 years old or pretty close to it. Uh, and I think there was some strength in that. One of the things I really enjoyed at seminary was I was not the only older person in that category. You'd be surprised how many older people actually be, are in seminary these days. I knew get one guy that was a retired lieutenant colonel from the Army. Another guy was a physician. Another two guys I knew were attorney, had been attorneys. And they were coming into the pastorate. Why? Because they felt like God was calling them to do it. And so sometimes the calling comes early on. Sometimes it comes later on. But the calling must be there. And if the calling really comes, I don't know how anybody could possibly say no. You know, something I dealt with for, for, several, for several years, I started seminary, not because I wanted to be a pastor, I started seminary just because I wanted to know more. That's the reason I went to the first couple of years of school, just because I wanted to know more than what I had learned. Uh, but as time went by, I just began to feel, you know, I had a job that I loved, I, and I was getting, they were throwing money at me, guys. I was making tons of money. And I really enjoyed doing what I was doing. I'd never worked a single Sunday while I was in the training department for six years. I never worked a single night. I had the perfect schedule. When I left my job, people in the plant were tripping over it trying to get it. It's the job everybody wanted to have. But I realized at some point, and it, you know, it was a growing thing with me, that I could, I could not continue doing what I was doing. Never heard the voice of God speak, and I really maybe some of you have. I'm saying that's entirely a possibility. I never have. But I had this overbearing feeling, and it came on me every day when I went to work, and that is this sense that you're not where I want you to be, you're not doing what I want you to do. And it hounded me for about a year. And finally... I'll never forget the first conversation Lori and I had about all this stuff. We were, we were in the, at the house. She was walking down the hall going one way, and I was walking down the hall going the other way. And as we went by each other, I just kind of mumbled under my breath, what do you think about me leaving Florida Power and going to school full time? <laughs> and she went. <laughs> but over you know, several weeks of prayer and, and consideration, stuff like we, we decided we, have no, we don't have a choice. It's not really up to us. But one of the things I struggled with was this, is getting paid for what I do. I still struggle with it. It's amazing to me that I get compensated for doing what I do. It really is. You think I'm kidding, but I'm serious. It's a heart attack. Now, let's just talk about a few things. We had already kind of breached this a little bit last time when we were uh, in this particular uh, passage. 
Uh, one of the things, some things I want to just share with you this morning is this, is I understand this, that being a pastor today in some situations is very lucrative. Yeah, we live in the day of mega churches. And most of those guys with mega churches, they are six-figure salary packages. And some of them way more than that. There are people who have become very wealthy in the ministry. And today in particular, for many, many years, the average pastor was way undercompensated. And very often churches used reasoning like things like this. You may have heard some people say something like this, or you may have even thought that this yourself, and that is, well, you know, by paying the pastor not a lot, not much money, it's a way for us to make sure he stays humble. Seriously, there are churches that have used that argument for the reason of undercompensating their pastor. I still hear it on occasion every now and then. And because of that, there was, it very often pastors lived like at poverty level or just above poverty. You just need to understand that today, in today's church in the United States, most pastors don't fall into that category. Now, some of them, I would say, are overcompensated. But there are pastors today who are still way undercompensated for what they do. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a life job. It's not a job that you come into the church office on Monday morning and you work from 8 to 4 and you go home and you just do that five days a week and that's how it goes. That's just not what it is at all. It's a a job that you can never leave anywhere. Everywhere you go, there it is. You go home at night. you're not going to leave everything behind. You go home at night, and there are things on your mind, and people on your mind, and you're you're praying little prayers continually, and and this, that, and the other. So what I'm telling you is a job, it's an occupation that consumes your life. Let me just give you some of the... uh, PCA guidelines as far as compensation goes for pastors. Uh, Basically, what it says is this, is that they should be compensated sufficiently enough that they are free from worldly cares and avocations. In other words, that they will never have any financial worries. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think that's realistic? Do you think maybe that's almost like setting a double standard? Let me ask you something. Have you for one time ever been at a place in your life when you were completely free from worldly cares and avocations? See, I'd say this is one of the dangers that we have is that is sometimes today pastors are put in a special category, a special group where the rules and the the things that apply to, to, to the everyday life of people don't apply to pastors. I totally disagree with that. Because I have been where you are. I know what it's like to be there. Where sometimes you're struggling financially. You don't know where money's going to come to pay this bill and pay that bill and all that kind of stuff. You're there. Uh. 
you need to understand something else too, and that is pastors get some tax advantages that you don't get. They get to keep more of their money than you do. Okay? Uh, Now, just to let you know some things. I am more compensated than the average pastor of the church at large for a congregation this size. On the other hand, as far as the PCA goes, I would fall below average. Uh, let me just tell you this. Laurie and I do fine. It's not that we don't have financial struggles. I think everybody has financial struggles. I think it's good for us sometimes to have financial struggles. It helps us to remember the value of a dollar. I'm not making near as much money today as I was 25 years ago at Florida Power. So we got 25 years difference between the two. And you know that salaries and things like that have gone up a whole bunch in that time. Uh, But Lori and I are doing fine. You guys have taken care of us all of these years. There's not been one single time in the existence of Springs Presbyterian Church where we had to even be concerned about whether we're going to be paid this week or not. That has never happened. Not one time. In the, in the first year, we had like 10 people in the church, and they promised to pay me a salary that we all knew in the very beginning. Unless something magnificent happens here, they can't do it. We didn't have any wealthy people. We had working class people. But their faith was so great in God that he would bring in what was necessary. That's what they trusted in and that's what we trusted in. And guess what happened? He did what was needed. Paul goes on to say this. He says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think that sets elders apart? Is, in other words, there are special rules here that he's establishing for these guys who are leaders? In other words, this is how you're supposed to treat them. This is how you're supposed to deal with an elder, that if someone says something to you, unless someone else says the same thing, then you're not supposed to accept it. You think that's a standard that's just for elders? It's actually the standard in Scripture that establishes truth in any way. In other words, you're not supposed to believe or accept anything as truth except on the testimony of two or three witnesses. So this is not a rule that sets elders apart from everybody else. What Paul is saying here is these guys in leadership, they should be held to the, not a better standard or a higher standard or even a lesser standard, but to the same standard everyone else is held to. In other words, when they're wrong, they need to be kindly and gently told that they're wrong. 
there's a big difference between criticism and bringing accusations against someone. Criticism is, well, we all know what criticism is. We've all been criticized. We've all criticized other people, right? Uh, and let me just say this, that, uh, that being criticized is part of being a pastor. There are going to be people who criticize you. That's, it, it comes with the job. It's part of the turf. Uh, and people who don't take criticism don't belong in the ministry. Who can't take it, who can't take it well, then they really don't belong in the ministry because the ministry will chew them up and spit them out if they can't take it. Uh, which means this, you know, very, as a pastor, very often you really want to please everybody. I want all of you guys to think the world of me. I want all of you just to love me upside down and backwards. But, you know, I'm a sinner just like everybody else. And this is one of the things I just want to challenge all of us with is this idea. Because we've done this. We've, they, we've taken pastors and we put them up on these pedestals. They are like the super saints. Their faith is greater. They're this, that, and the other. They have a closer relationship with Jesus and, and all that kind of stuff. But I just wanted you to understand something today, that pastors are just like you. They just, they have, just have a different calling. We have the same struggles as you do. We struggle with sin just as much as you do. We commit the same kind of sins that you commit. We have besetting sins just like you have besetting sins. You see, it's one thing to offer criticism, constructive criticism is what I'm talking about. That is a good thing, okay? There's a form of criticism that is not a good thing. Constructive criticism has a design, and that is to encourage and strengthen and build up, not to cut somebody down. The bad kind of criticism, the design, the whole purpose of it is to cut somebody's feet out from underneath them. It's entirely a different thing when we talk about accusations. Accusations mean bringing some charge of immorality, in essence, against a teaching elder. Now, I've been doing this for 25 years almost. Can you believe it, Lloyd? The thing I can't believe that for 25 years, Lloyd and Lucy may have sat here and listened to me, and Deborah and Walter and Lori, they've listened to me all these Sundays, all these years. And they haven't gotten so sick of it that <laughs> they just fall asleep or do this, that, or the other. But uh, you see, I'm not sure that I could do that. Seriously, I'm not sure that I could be someone sitting in the pews who listens to the same person week after week after week, year after year after year. So you're better than I am at that. Maybe that's the reason God has me up here because He knows I can't do what you do. Accusations are serious business. In other words, it's a charge of immorality. Uh, and, and, and it can't be something that's according to our opinion, well, I think this or I think that. It needs to be scripturally based. In other words, someone's committed a sin that is, you know, you find it in script, Scripture. Uh, most of the discipline cases I've been involved in since I've been a pastor have been disciplining other pastors. Some of those were good friends of mine. 
One of them was one of my very best friends in the whole world. And the amazing thing is this, as I sit side by side with some of those guys in discipline cases that came prior to that. And they were involved in disciplining other pastors. And at least one situation I know that the, the, the particular sin that this guy was eventually disciplined for, he was in the process of, of doing that himself while he was condemning someone else. Uh, and that's very often the case. You need to understand that. So again, pastors are not perfect people. They're sinners just like everybody else. Uh, but it's been really hard to do that. And you know what's going through everyone's mind? We're sitting there, and eventually there has to be a judgment, and that is, are we going to discipline this man for what he's been accused of? And there seems to be evidence of it, ample evidence of it. We would never bring charges against an elder if just one person came and said, well, he told a lie to somebody, and there was no supporting evidence or anything like that because we know that people are sinners. And we know there are some people who want to get pastors in trouble, and they wouldn't go. it would be beyond them to, to fabricate something. We understand that, right? So why do we do that? But the thought that's going through has always been going through my mind, and when I talk to other guys, the same thing. is What what you're thinking about as this proceeding is going on is, this could be me. You see, and it accomplishes some things that it would not accomplish otherwise. And this is one of the things that Paul brings to the attention, he, he, he says that if they continue in sin, that you're supposed to rebuke them in the presence of all. In other words, you do it publicly. Everything up to that point takes place in private. But if you've gone through the, the three different steps of discipline that Jesus applies or, or gives us in Matthew chapter 18, and you get to the end of those, and the person is still unrepentant of their sin, then and only then... Do you rebuke them before the presence of everyone else? Now, we've been through these steps of discipline before, right? And these are the words of Jesus. This isn't something that Paul wrote or, or John or Peter or, or any of the other apostles. This is some, these are the words of Jesus. And he says, if your brother sins then what are you supposed to do? Or you're supposed to go to them, and you're supposed to go to them in private. Not in public, not to all the other people in a congregation. You're supposed to go to that person in private. And let me tell you something, that's not something any of us really relish doing. Seriously. If you've ever done it, it's probably not something you look forward to doing. But you go to them privately, not with an accusatory, judgmental nature, which is what Jesus warns of us of when he says, judge not lest ye be judged. And then there in that same context, he basically says, make sure your own, you have your own act together before you go pointing your finger at anybody else. Get the log out of your own eye before you try to get the speck out of your brother's eye. 
Okay, so you're not going with a judgmental attitude. This person has done something that I would never do. I could never do that. Have you ever thought that? Look what so-and-so did. I could never do something like that. You need to be careful about that. If you ever say think anything like that or think anything like that, because God may loosen the reins and let you see what you truly are capable of doing. That's a pr- very prideful and arrogant attitude that belongs in no Christian's mindset. But you go in private, and if there's repentance, that's where it stops. You know, go and talk to so-and-so or talk to some, try to build your camp in the church and get people on your side of the issue and things like that is what people typically do. But let me tell you, that sin is just as bad as the sin we're talking about. It may even be worse because that kind of activity has the ability to wreak havoc and destroy congregations. So what I'm telling you guys is this, is we have no business at all talking with anybody at all about a particular thing at all until we have sat face-to-face to that person ourselves and talked with them. Everything else is nothing but gossip. That's all it is. And gossip will rip a church apart. If you go to them and they repent, it's a done deal. You don't have any choice in it. If they don't repent, Jesus says, take two or three witnesses and go to them again. So now it's not just you. It's a couple of brothers or sisters in the congregation or in Christians. And you go to that person and you talk with them again. If there's repentance... End of story. And again, this is still in private. It's not in the public. But what if they don't repent? And that's where Jesus says, take it to the church. And that's where, where Paul is talking about. Rebuke them in public. Now, what it means is this. As we call it, we use this word excommunication which means being removed from the community, basically. We've never excommunicated a member at Springs Church. That doesn't mean we don't have the authority to. We have the authority to do it because Jesus gave us that authority. There are very, very few cases that I, of pastors. There was, one pa- there was one pastor, as far as I understand, that was actually excommunicated. Because he basically denied the faith. And then you understand what excommunication basically means this. It's the church declaring to this person, you may call yourself a Christian. You may even think and be convinced that you're a Christian. But based upon your behavior and your lack of repentance when you are really, truly in the wrong, you don't seem to, you don't appear to be a real life believing Christian to us. Now, what would that mean? Would it mean that we would lock them out of the sanctuary on Sunday morning if they came here and they wanted to worship? 
We'd have a couple of deacons back there with bats or whatever to drive them off if they came to the door. Is that what we would do? <laughs> Let's just say I hope it would never come to something like that. I mean, the door of the sanctuary is open to anybody, everybody that comes here to worship, comes here seeking Christ. Whether they've been disciplined or not disciplined or if they're unbelieving or they're believing. We don't, we don't have guys out there in the parking lot, you know, uh, talking with people before they come in the door to make sure that they make a credible profession of faith in Jesus before they come into the sanctuary on Sunday morning. Do we? Uh, but I'm convinced of this, and that is if we really, truly practice those things that Jesus gives us, virtually nothing would ever come to the church. Because what I have found over and over again is this, is that when you do simply do what Jesus has told you to do, that is an amazing thing. I know a guy, and his reputation is this, is he has a real temper. Got a real temper. Uh, you know, he would just ring people that work for him upside down and backwards sometimes, and I worked for him for a while. He never did it to me, but I saw him do it to other people. Uh, he worked in the power plant. His reputation amongst unbelievers in the power plant was horrendous. He probably would have gotten the... Trophy for biggest jerk in the plant. But he was a profession Christian. And I used to work for him. But then I was transferred in to training department, but I was training the people that worked for him. And so <laughs> I had people that worked for him coming to me and saying, you know what, this guy is professing faith in Jesus Christ and he just did this and he, you know, ranted and raved and screamed and all of that. One of the technicians in the chemistry lab, <laughs> you know, and, and all of that. And, and, you know, I knew him. And the thing about it is, is he was going to the same church I was, and he was a different person at church. Everybody at church loved him, and uh, but it, everybody at the church at the, at the plant had a completely different perspective on him. It's just a demonstration how very often when we go to church we're different people than we really are in life. You know, we want everybody here to like us and think highly of us and, you know, and, and all of that. Uh, but the Lord just put it on my heart that I had to, I, it's like, Keith, you got to talk to this guy. No, and obviously nobody else is willing to do it. You got to talk to him. And I tried to wiggle out of it. Did everything I could to wiggle out of it. But just that, that burden was on my heart, so I called him. And I just told him, you know, that we need to have a meeting. There's some things I need to talk with him about. And so we, we did, and, and we met. And I really expected him just to go off on me, you know, from the very get-go. But he didn't do that. He really listened to what I had to say. And by the time of the conversation, he said, Keith, he said, you really must care a lot about me to be willing to do this. I wish I could tell you that his life was transformed from that point. There was a difference. Uh, anyway, but it, it's always stood as being an example to me of what the result comes when you actually do 
what God tells you to do, what Jesus calls us to do, rather than taking the route that's so easy for us, and that is just to start talking to other people. You've heard me say this before, that when I became a pastor, I thought I was supposed to be Mr. Fix-It. You know, and when somebody came with me, he said, someone did this or someone did that. I would go to that person and try to work it out. And you know what happened every single time? On the other end of it, they were both were mad at me. It happened time and time again. So let me just clue you into something. If you come to me and you make an accusation against somebody, my first question is going to be to you is, have you spoken with them about it? And if you tell me no, I'm going to say, there's the door. You need to do what Jesus tells you to do. You need to go to them and you need to talk to them. If you go and they don't repent, then maybe I'll go with you next time because you're supposed to take witnesses. But that first conversation needs to be between you and that person in private. Now, let me just say this. You need to see some wisdom in this. I'm not going to encourage a woman who has some concerns about the possibility of a man being a, a serial rapist or something, having a closed meeting conference with him. Okay? So you need to understand, and Jesus would tell us the same thing. We need to use godly wisdom in this. Uh, but at the same time, we can't shirk our responsibility for any and every possible possibility, right? But again, what Paul is doing here is he's not, he's not setting them apart, elders apart as a special class, that they're, that they're held to a higher standard or they're held to a lower standard, just that you, that you give them the same consideration that you would give any other Christian, that you don't accept an accusation that just comes from one person. Now, that, you, that person may be somebody that you trust a great deal. Maybe all, most of the time they are trustworthy, but at the same time we understand this, that none of us is perfect, every one of us is a sinner. So is there anybody among us who is absolutely, totally, no doubt about it, completely trustworthy in every single situation? The answer to that is no. And again, like I said, I really believe that there would be very, very few discipline cases that came to the church, and there really are few here, uh, if we would just do what Jesus tells us to do. But more often than not, we let our sinful nature get the better of us, and we become nothing but gossips, talking to other people about things, very often things that we think we know a lot about, and a lot of times we don't know that much about. Now, let me just say this as far as the elders go. I love our elders. Uh, and one of the reasons is this, is none of them run to, toward conflict. In other words, they don't get some crazy sick joy out of conflict. Uh, some people do. 
You know people like that where it seems like they just enjoy fighting or arguing or, you know, being in the middle of some deal. None of our guys do. Our guys will run from it if they can. And I'd much rather them be that way than to to be people who would run to it. There's a rule that we need to abide by. You've heard me say this before. And that is, are, are you ever going to err? Are you making mistakes when it comes to judgments in regard to other people? Is the church, is it possible for the church to do the same thing? My rule of thumb is this, is that when we err, and we are going to err, that's going to happen. We are going to make mistakes. That when we make those mistakes, they need to be on the side of grace, not the other way. In other words, it's because we've given someone more grace maybe than they should have had rather than taking any grace away from them. You follow me? It comes down to things like this. Let's just say that, uh, that we had someone come in on one of the Sundays when we serve the Lord's Supper and maybe you had some concerns about what their relationship was with Jesus and so on. Maybe you knew them outside or something like that and you weren't too sure they were Christians and, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, But they took the Lord's Supper anyway. There are things in place to help prevent that from happening. This is the reason I fence the table every time we do this to make sure that people understand that this is not a supper for everybody. Okay? That's what's called fencing the table. Uh, But let me just say this. Which do you think is a greater sin? To allow someone to take the Lord's Supper who should not or withhold the Lord's Supper from someone who should take it? Most people would say the first. I say the second. That's how my plumbing is. That's how my, my mind is. That when we err, we err on the side of grace. Wouldn't you agree with that? Seriously. That's exactly how God has dealt with you. It's what Jesus would do. Of course, he never made any mistakes, so you have to worry about it. But we are going to make mistakes. Now I've gone off on all this, I don't know. <laughs> well, discipline is a necessary thing. I mean, we all come from families. Is there discipline in your family? Can you imagine a family, family where, there, where there's absolutely no discipline at all? None. We understand that when there are people gathered together, there has to be some means of disciplining because sometimes discipline is going to be an absolute necessity. And that involves teaching elders as well as everybody else. Okay, I went way longer than I planned on it, but that's not unusual.
Okay. The praise team is going to come and wrap things up.